This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Catherine McLaughlin has just wrapped up her first year as a full-time reporter. She started immediately after graduating from college. She ended her first year with a bang, an investigation into a raft of departures from the Laconia School District. Loyal listeners with the Granite Beat might recognize her voice as she was the guest host of the episode featuring Amanda Goki of the Boston Globe. If you missed that one, you can go back and catch up. This episode will be a bit of a departure for us in the sense that we'll be discussing this story, which was produced in close collaboration with Julie, who edited the story. So some of the questions will be for my co-host as well. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. It's my pleasure. It's very exciting to be on this side of the interview for once. Could you start us off, please, by telling us when and why you decided to make journalism your your profession and how you managed to get a start in the career? Absolutely. I came into journalism because I took a class on it in college. I was a political science major and knowing that I liked politics and I liked writing, but I didn't really know where I was going to take that and what I was going to do with it. And my junior year, so kind of late, I took a class on journalism and it just clicked. It just felt really right. It felt really natural. It was fun. And so I, I just followed my passion there. I quickly joined the school paper and got involved with the news team there. I did a couple summer internships or just one summer internship in journalism. And by the time I graduated, there was an opening here and I had done some freelancing for the Daily Sun during the pandemic. And it just kind of everything fell into place. I was just so excited to start my life and start earning money and working after graduating because I'd been in school during the pandemic and I was, it was just an easy yes. So you grew up within the coverage area of the Daily Sun. What's it like to write for your hometown newspaper? Yes, I grew up in Guilford. I still live in Guilford. It's, there's more pros than cons, I would say. You, you really have a, a solid knowledge of the lay of the land. It's very easy to pick up tips from sources because they're just part of your life. There are also cons as well. You have to, you know, make sure that you're checking yourself in terms of which stories you're too close to in a way that you probably wouldn't if I was reporting in Iowa or California or wherever. But in a lot of ways, I think it's a pro. It's, it feels very, it's familiar. It's intimate. I can understand why people care about the stories they care about because I know them. They're my neighbors. They're my friends of friends of friends. Do you think that many of your peers, age-wise, are in the habit of reading local news? And if not, do you think there's anything that we could do as a news outlet to correct that habit? That's a thinker of a question. I don't think many of them are. I think a lot of my friends, if they're reading local news, it's because I sent it to them (laughs) or because I wrote it and they're kind friends who care about my work. I think things that local news could do more is in the ways that we try to ground our reporting and broader issues, national trends, is to think about, well, which national trends, kind of do that in reverse, which national trends are relevant to the young people in our area and why are they relevant to the young people in our area and ask them how they feel, I think, because we don't have a lot of young reporters in the local news space, young people don't end up being sources and Hmm. that's kind of a waterfalling disconnect, I suppose. Okay. So we need to hire more young reporters? Selfishly, maybe, yes. (laughs) Okay. 
Uh, I'd like to move on to the story we referenced in the intro. The article was headlined, Exit Interviews, Laconia School District Didn't Ask Employees Why They Left, So We Did, and it was published in May. How did this story idea come about? This story was one that we had sort of heard snippets about. It's been developing over more than a year, but we had never been able to reach a source that was willing to go on the record. And some events at a school board meeting discussing this outflow of employees sparked a few people to feel motivated, to feel the courage to come to us and say, I'm ready, I'm ready to talk and you need to know what's actually happening. And that was how we first got on the tail of it. And we just heard from more and more people. We reached out to more people who agreed to speak with us and it, it became a story. Can you tell me how you decided to approach the structure of the story with the idea being that this is a something that was built mostly on unnamed sources? To be unnamed was something that many of these sources requested. It's not an uncommon request for us to get at a local newspaper where people are very close to the issues at hand. Anytime we get a request for an anonymous source, that's something I, as a reporter, have to get permission from my editor to grant. It's not something we just throw around, you know, casually. And the way that we, and I'm sure Julia can speak more to this, the way that we handle those requests are to think about why has this person requested to be anonymous and do we feel that that reason is material and meaningful? And on the flip side of that, if we do decide to grant them anonymity, what else do we need in this story to ensure that it can hold its own weight, to ensure that it has the facts on the ground to back it up, to ensure that it has a level of believability without those names. And with this story, we felt that that was there because there were a lot of court documents that aligned with what these sources were saying. The sources that we talked to, both named and unnamed, presented a highly consistent account of what happened and what happened to them. And also because it aligned with comments and test, or I don't want to say testimony, but comments I had seen at school board meetings and online in real time. So it, it all lined up and it stacked up and we felt that it, though we did not have all named sources, there was sufficient grounds there and sufficient why. There was a sufficient motivation behind the story for it to go to publication. I would like to hear your thoughts on this, Julie. Could you tell me, well, to back up, the Daily Sun, like most news outlets, has an aversion to using anonymous sources. Could you tell me why that aversion exists, when that policy is broken, and why this story seemed fitting for an exemption to that policy? Well, I want to back up by first saying to clarify what is an anonymous source. An anonymous source is not somebody who called up the newspaper and left a tip and didn't leave us their name or any way to contact them. An anonymous source is someone who is known to the reporter or to the reporter and the editor. It is someone who they know the identity of. It's someone who they have vetted the identity and knowledge of their subject matter in the story of. And you know, an anonymous source is just what we said earlier, an unnamed source in the story but that does not mean that we don't know who they are and that we can't go back to them if we have more questions or to clarify things. And that's just a really important point that I wanna make. Anonymous sources can be hard for readers to identify with when you're reading a story. I think having a person-centered story is one of the things that we really focus on to help a reader 
understand a topic through a narrative often by a person who's experiencing the issue that we're covering. So that can be harder to do with an anonymous source, but not impossible. It's also raises questions for readers who don't understand what an anonymous source is or why, which is one of the reasons that we're talking about it today. As Catherine mentioned, it is not something that we take lightly. You know, in the past six months, I can probably not even count on both my hands the number of times that one of our team has come to me and said, hey, I have this person, but they only want to speak anonymously. And then I just turn around to them and say, well, I think you need to find another person. This was a very delicate story because of the the breadth of the story. We did decide that anonymous voices who, again, as Catherine mentioned, whose accounts could paralleled other things that we had heard and other source documents, that it was an appropriate way to, to tell the story because those anonymous sources were wrapped into other named sources who were lending us their credibility and their names to the story to help make sure that the narrative was clear. So once you were able to build an investigation incorporating a large amount of anonymous sources, what did that investigation reveal? In terms of the content of the story itself? Yes. So we spoke to a number of, again, both named and unnamed former employees of the Laconia School District, and they outlined a series of events involving the superintendent that had led to them departing the district, either because they chose to leave, because they felt they just could no longer stay there, or whether they were forced out or, in some cases, terminated. The account that they gave was that complaints that they had filed against the superintendent for a number of reasons, many of them involving intimidation or feelings of coercion, then those complaints were investigated by an independent investigator hired by the school board. And they participated in that investigation under a promise of anonymity. During the investigation, they felt that their identities had been exposed and compromised and that the superintendent knew who they were and then retaliated against them. The result according to their accounts, was that by the end of this school year, every principal and vice principal in the district, as well as nearly a dozen other administrators, had departed, and that such an influx was bad for students, it was expensive for taxpayers, and it was, of course, very stressful for them. And we felt that that, motivate, that, that story, especially the latter part of it, the costs to these individuals, the cost to students, the cost to the community, made it absolutely something that we were obligated to report on. How do you think this story might have been different had you insisted on using named sources? I don't know that we would have had enough sources for this to be substantive enough to publish, for, to even have a story. Many of the people we spoke with, some of them were reasons of fear or deep concern. Others were really firm barriers that people were up against in terms of their reasons for needing anonymity from us. And while the name sources we had were very powerful and very clear in terms of the story they told, they were not on their own. That's not enough to have told this story. We, the power of the story is in the breadth of the number of people it affected and the breadth of the people that spoke with us. And in this case, we may not have gotten this story if it weren't for that, that shield of anonymity. As Julie mentioned, a lot of the time when you speak with an anonymous source or when someone requests anonymity, 
we ask, is there somewhere else we can go to get this commentary? Is there someone else who can offer us this information? And this was a story in which there was not other routes to get this information. Providing anonymity was the only way. What sort of feedback have you gotten since this story has been published? And I'm curious from to hear from both of you. I'll let Julie start. So I would say the reaction to this story has been varied. It's a real journalist's story, I would have to say. Other professional, current and former journalists and people in the industry have reached out with high praise for the excellent journalism that it is. I think one thing people don't realize is it's it can be almost harder to use anonymous sources than named sources because you have to really make sure that you find a way for the reader to connect without a name. And Catherine was able to do that. We have had, you know, a mixed reaction from the school community, but they understand that they have their job to do and that we have ours. And, you know, they're there to serve the students and the parents and the taxpayers and that we serve our readers. Absolutely. I want to build off a point you had made there and that in some ways it's harder to use anonymous sources one comparison or question that we've gotten in feedback of the story is why are anonymous sources allowed at this paper when we don't we don't allow anonymous letter writers? And that's a question I've gotten from, from multiple people, more out of curiosity than critique, I think, in a lot of cases. Anonymous sources are in some ways harder because, as Julie mentioned, they're not unnamed to me. They're not anonymous to me. But because these folks' names are not attached to the words that they say, in many ways, I, as a reporter, am more inside the story. It's, in some ways, it's our credibility as a paper that people are relying on rather than the authority of someone's name. But as we said, comparing an unnamed source to an unnamed letter, the, the letter writer, we have no way, of, no way of verifying their background, that they even live around here or have connections to around here, and that that's not the case in, in our stories. But that's, that's one of the questions I've gotten most is, is why that difference in approach to our opinion section versus our news section. Have you been able to find a clear and concise answer to that question? In a lot of ways, kind of what I had just said is that, well, they're not anonymous to me and they're not anonymous to Julie in this case, and that we are able to vet their background to verify that the things that they've said in their account aligns with our known timeline with documentation that we've been able to find that's not something we're able to do with someone who's just writing a letter and submitting it to the paper without a name attached and disappearing into the wind. I'm curious, given that you've just completed, it feels like you've been with the paper for longer because you did some summer summer work for, as a freelancer, but as since you're coming up to the, uh, or just made the, just completed your first full year as a, as a full-timer. Do I have that right? Is that about right? Mm -hmm. Has there been anything that has surprised you about the job? or maybe something that you've learned that would surprise most people who are outside of the profession? Absolutely. What I, when I tell people about my work and that what I've learned in a year as a journalist is that the writing is the easy part. And especially someone who's always loved writing, the writing is the easy part. The job is in many ways a charismatic challenge as much as anything else, especially I think in a community where some people already know me or know who I am whether it's establishing a professional relationship with someone I know socially or developing a professional relationship with someone that doesn't know who I am at all. And I'm this 24 year old girl asking them all these kinds of questions. 
the charismatic challenges in terms of winning people's trust, especially in a, a deeply Republican area, is the most challenging in the best way part of this work is, you know, pushing me as a as a young professional to to make those connections with people. I think that was also for me as a young journalist, the the hardest part was walking up to someone I didn't know and asking them 25 questions. Are you working on anything that you'd like to preview? There is a developing story in Meredith with a public boat launch right beside a marina that's trying to expand. And on paper, it kind of sounds like small potatoes, but the story is so interesting to me and why I'm so interested to see where it goes, it's still developing, is because this sort of tension between the marina that's trying to expand and the local lake residents has been happening for decades. I think the first time they tried to expand was in 2003 and they still haven't been successful. And it also, I think, is a microcosm of a lot of the cultural attitudes around the lake, around expansion and people using the lake who aren't necessarily lake homeowners and a sort of tension between full-time residents and people who travel here to use the lake. All of that is wrapped up in this one story. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very excited to see where, where it goes. Do you have any advice that you'd like to share with aspiring journalists? Do what you want. Um, I had several people when I was approaching my graduation and trying to decide what to do and where to work, warn me, stay away from local news. Don't, it's a trap. Don't do it. You'll be there forever. And that, I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth. They don't know every paper. They don't know this paper, our team. New Hampshire is such a vibrant place for local news. I would say go where you're called and do what you want to do. It's your job. It's your life. There's no pressure to be on the right path. Do, do what's going to pay your bills and make you happy and forget about the rest of it. Do you feel that working for your college newspaper was helpful? Absolutely. I think, and I make this comparison to people a lot, that college newspapers are, in their essence, local newspapers. There's so many parallels. You're working with a lot of the same sources. You're working within a tight-knit community in the same way that with local journalism, every story is, someone else on this podcast said a grocery store story where you have to be prepared to walk into the grocery store or the coffee shop next day and see people reading it, hear about it, hear from sources, get an earful, good or bad, you have to be ready. When you're in college, that's every single story you write, whether it's about the hockey team or the dean of students or the frat, you know, it's every story is a grocery store story in the same way that it is with local news. And everything is deeply personal in the same way it is with local news. There are just so many parallels. College writing is an excellent prep preparation for local news writing. It's a natural, it's a natural step. I just want to give one last shout out to Catherine in her first year of reporting. She's a finalist in the 2022 New Hampshire Press Association Awards um, for her political reporting, which has been excellent, as is everything else she's doing. So... Thank you. Well, next time she's on, we can introduce her as award-winning journalist, <laughs> Catherine McLaughlin. There we go. If that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And you, you as well, Julie. Thank you. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University 
for editing and other support.